Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And the Rambling Runner podcast is presented by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and it just takes three easy steps. Go to mercurymile.com, enter your sizes and preferences, and then they will send you out a curated box of running goodies and apparel fit for you, curated for you, and you're going to love what you get. And here's the best part. You keep what you love. You send back what you don't. You just stuff it back in the envelope put it back in your mailbox, and it's gone. You keep what you love, and the prices are fantastic. Not only do you get great stuff that you may never have seen anywhere else, they're also aligned with the best, the absolute best and leaders in the industry from a running perspective, the top running shoe brands, the top running shoe shoe apparel, also very stylish brands, and just stuff that you may never have seen before, and you just save time and money. Time being the operative word here, we are all busy, and they just send it right to your home. You don't have to go around shopping everywhere. It's just sent right to you, and then you're all good. Again, so you go to mercurymile.com, enter code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout, and you'll save $10 on the $20 stylist fee. So today's episode is with David Roach. This guy is an absolute stud in every sense of the word. Uh, Such a humble and self-deprecating guy, too, as you'll hear in a second. So... We don't dive a whole lot into his bio in this episode because, shoot, man, this thing was like over an hour and 15 minutes long, even without that. So I'm going to do a little bio here just to catch you up to speed so that we can dive into the good stuff because that's why we have this podcast. You know, we want to deal with the preamble. We want to get right to the meat. So David Roach was a college football player turned runner. So he went, uh, did a little Ivy League football uh, for a little bit and then quickly converted but down to uh, you know running and just endurance training, generally speaking, um, and then eventually uh, just really dove into running, you know, full speed, so to speak. So he was uh, at Duke Law School. That's where he met his wife to be, Megan Roach. She played field hockey there, and then transitioned to track and field and cross country. And David was there pursuing his law degree. They ended up just becoming this amazing running duo. Uh, they've both t- just run at the absolute pinnacle of their sport. They're both absolutely fantastically fast. Um, so while we talk in here in this episode about coaching, don't let that fool you. David is an elite runner, absolutely fantastic runner. We don't talk about that here, but you can listen to him on a lot of other podcasts. And I would, if I were you, I, I started this podcast by telling him that I basically had binge listened to his episodes on other podcasts and they're worth it. I would definitely check those out if I were you. So that's where he is from a running perspective. They started Some Work All Play, which is the name of their running group and their running company. They just call it SWAP. This is a long name. So you definitely want to go with the acronym. So Some Work All Play. And they put out a book called The Happy Runner. You may have seen it out there. Uh, it's the book with the, the the smiling emoji on the cover. It's also the podcast graphic for this episode. It's an absolute must-have from a running book perspective. It is really, really good. It touches on two parts. It goes, you know, it goes full mindset the first half and then gets to, into training in the second half. I bought it about a month ago and I love it. I absolutely love it and I would get it if I were you. Also, David is a must follow on Twitter. Uh, just you know, type in David Roach. You'll see him on there. Um, and he's also a prolific writer. He's a uh, 
an editor at uh, Trailrunner Magazine, and he puts out just a ton of good content in all spaces. So, with all of that being said, a very long introduction, and, you know, especially in regards to my normal introductions, which I like to think are fairly brief. But with all of that being said, here is my conversation with David Roach. Hello, David, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. I am so freaking excited. Um, yeah, I, I just listened to Nick and a, a few others last week, and you're so good at this. And uh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. This will be fun. That makes two of us. So I am the proud owner of your book, along with Megan's book, The Happy Runner. Love the process. Get faster and run longer. It's it's a fantastic book, and I've actually binge binge listened to all the episodes you've been on on various podcasts so first of all thank you for everything you're doing for the running community you, you two are really doing a lot <laughs> well thank you and i am sorry to to your ears for having to binge listen to what i've been on um the the bs alone could probably like fuel you for for months um but yeah it's funny that you mentioned the book i i the uh, the subtitle there that you read out um, we didn't have that much say over the subtitle. So the initial one, I'm trying to remember what it exactly was. We, we ended up having to bargain for the one that we got, but it was, I think, faster, stronger, longer, or something like that. Um, and we're like, I don't know, that sounds a little bit sexual. I don't yeah, know. That, that can go, go to a lot that. of genres right there. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, we might get more search uh, search clicks if we if we conclude that. So maybe that was the right idea and the publisher knew what they were doing. Yeah, so you'd have to have like a, a like a, a separate like a third section, right? You have like yeah. the, the two major sections of the book. You have to introduce a whole third runner of like <laughs> exactly. why is the emoji on the cover actually smiling? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Or or give the emoji or give the uh, thing, make it a stick figure with some like anatomical correctness or something. I mean, I think we're on. <laughs> I think we have a second book, right? You know, we've just discovered it right here. I mean, next time we can like make boatloads of cash. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. And you, you can you can team up with Christy Ashwand and, and like, can you know, make it like a, a dual effort to talk about running recovery? Oh, yeah. No, that, her book's so good. Um, so, yeah, it's an honor to be included in that, especially as we're talking about porn crossovers of our book. So um, <laughs> she's much she's a much better journalist than I am. That's for sure. This is true. That's also her day job. So, you know, your your day job is kind of like the, the co founder slash co-head along with Megan of swap um, some work all play, which is a, an extremely successful running group. I don't even want to say team because it isn't a team in a more traditional sense. You guys seem like almost like a, like a running commune in a digital sense, (laughs) Um, which, which is really interesting because it seems like you approach this community and the athletes that you work with and alongside in a way that's very holistic. And you have you've, dug deep into this on a lot of different shows and in the book as well. But just, just real quick, what is that community like from a day-to-day experience in terms of how people interact with you and Megan, each other, especially in light of the fact that you have people in there that are on just a wide range of athletic abilities and successes? <laughs> well, you really skirted around calling it a cult very, uh, very aptly. So, Good on good job on that. Um, <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, so what it looks like on a day-to-day basis varies a lot based on the person. So I guess first from like how we interact with athletes, um, we try to interact with every athlete every day, all year long, all year long um, in their training logs. So um, 
basically we want to hear everything an athlete thinks is relevant, not just about running. Like, I mean, I say all the time, I don't care what the numbers say. I care about how you feel and how you feel. Isn't just about your run that you did today. It's about everything that you think is relevant, you know? And so they update and then we update. So right before I got on this podcast, I was just sprinting to try to catch up um, so that I I don't get too far behind. Um, And we try to do that every single day, which is like, maybe that'll change when we have kids later on. But right now um, we just found that like, I think it's more my, my latent anxiety coming out that if I don't check in with everyone, I'm like worried that something bad has happened. um, And I'm not there to there to be supportive about it. Um, But yeah, so I mean, I hope from the athlete's perspective, what that looks like is, you know, within a little bit after they run, whether it's just to share a normal boring day or to share something uplifting or to share a trauma that they went through or whatever they feel like, you know, they're in a conversation. It might not be like, like we're having right now, though. Sometimes it is, you know, I I've heard athletes say in the past that like often they'll see my little avatar pop up in their screen as they're updating. And it's almost like being watched by big brother or something. Um, But then as it relates to like, within the, like the people within the group, we let people engage as they want to. I mean, we have social media groups that are really cool, but I think the most exciting thing to us is that like all the people have organized meetups. And I mean, there's been a couple marriages of people within the group that have met at these things. Um, And it's just super weird and cool and not at all what we intended when we set out with this thing, like it all kind of formed spontaneously through people in the group. Like they took the initiative to set up our Facebook group and then we took over eventually. But um, yeah, in other words, I think we lucked into, you know, an amazing group of humans that created a culture that we almost piggybacked off of rather than us having any wisdom about any of this stuff. Like, I mean, gosh, I think back to how it all began and it kind of, you know, like that feeling when you have something really big, in your past or that you've done and you're just like, God, just thinking about it all over again kind of makes me tired. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think we got, I think we got lucky. Now, how, at what point in the process did happiness or enjoyment or fulfillment become a, I don't know, a foundational element of what you were doing as a runner and as a coach and just in this community in general? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, it was a butterfly effect thing. So in the initial, <laughs> well, okay, well, flash, flashback to 2013. Um, and I'm sitting in the apartment with Megan late at night when she's she's doing her med school work, looking at disgusting PowerPoints. And I'm there like, oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to do this. I'd coached people on the side. I'm just going to put up a little website online. Um, so I went on to Google, like the old dot blog spot things that they used to have. Um, which is like, honestly, it wasn't even cool back in like 1996, let alone, uh, 2013. And I set up like a thing, but on that first page, um, it said, you know, we don't care about your race results. We just care about like your long-term fulfillment. Um, and that wasn't necessarily something that was thought about a ton at the moment. Um, but I think that it kind of resonated in the years since. So, you know, as we started seeing athletes go through this, like our suspicions were kind of confirmed that, yeah, you know, none of the, the, like the checkpoints, the results actually matter that much to the fulfillment. They're kind of independent variables that often they sometimes correlate and people can mistake that for causation, 
but usually it's not. Usually it's totally unrelated. Um, and then over time, that became a more um, like broad. It became a broader philosophy that you know is a mix of puppies and unicorns, and then talk about depression and anxiety and death and all this other stuff that we might be known for. So, and I think it's still evolving now. I mean, you know, we don't know, we don't have any answers and we're just super fortunate to get to interact with these amazing people every day and get to learn so much from them. So yeah, essentially I think it's a, it's an evolving organism that started out as this single cell with like one gene in it, like one program. Um, and it's kind of just grown over time as other element as it's like environment changes based on the, the, you know, the awesome people we get to interact with, like Nick that you had on your show the other week. Exactly. Exactly. And I love the, I just, I love the paradoxical nature of the idea of like, we don't care about race results. It's almost like if Netflix had a slogan that says like, we don't want you to buy a TV. <laughs> and it's like, wait, isn't this the point of the endeavor? And I love how you approach it right from the start with that in mind. And it also brings, I think it brings to bear like that first conversation or introduction that you have with an athlete that's considering some work all play is you have to, I'm assuming on some level, if a, someone is going to choose a coach, they're basically self-selecting the idea of running is important to me as is racing. So then is it become a recruitment of people who share the group's values or is it more of getting people to them to kind of understand and then convert on some level into this ideal of it's not that race results don't matter is that this isn't going to be the end all be all of you i think you just nailed the underlying paradox and cognitive dissonance that you know we deal with all the time um and i think it's appropriate that you use the word conversion going more on these like cultish terms um but yeah so i think the big thing there is that while we don't care about results, we do care about you caring. So in other words, um, you know, as long as we all accept the premise that these, these big scary goals are not like they, nothing will change once you get there, but they are valuable in and of themselves. Um, so what we like athletes to do is, yeah, we want athletes to, dream really big and do the biggest races and, you know, try to win national championships and do all this stuff. But with the understanding that, you know, the old Kurt Vonnegut line about, you know, from a man without a country, uh, which is we're here to fart around and don't let anyone tell you different, you know, so that we're playing this whole time, like the some work all play the coaching team name, like, even as we have these big dreams and big goals and put ourselves out there and succeed and fail, um, it's all just a means to an end of like finding a process that lets you enjoy life, enjoy the, the play aspects, enjoy the failures too. Um, and I think the athletes that come on often understand that, but I don't think it's necessary for them to be fully bought into the, like, you know, the more quote unquote BS stuff. Um, because I think over time, most athletes realize that just naturally. Um, and I think that that's what we've seen. You know, Claire Gallagher um, visited the, two days ago, um, someone we've coached for a while and one of our best friends, too, and an amazing human. And what she was talking about, one of the things she was talking about, she just won the Way Too Cool 50K. And, you know, that's amazing. And we celebrate that. Like, we don't act like it's not a huge deal. But what she was really talking about to us is that 
her perspective on herself has changed a good bit, which isn't necessarily related to us. It's just, you know, her maturing and becoming even more of an amazing person over time where she was like, yeah, you know, I was just out there to like, as she calls it, earth rage, um, which, you know, she's all about the environment. She's like, yeah, it was beautiful. I was out there earth raging and it was so fun. And that's what we want to hear. You know, that might lead to winning a race like way too cool or winning a world championship, taking yourself super seriously and putting races up on a pedestal might lead to those things too, but usually it's just short-term. And since we want all athletes to do this, like be doing this long-term and to dream really big over many years, like it's all about supporting that long-term journey. Um, that's not to say that we are for everyone or we're inflexible. I mean, we will call people out if we think that they're doing things that are like harmful to themselves, but you know, everyone's so different. So like, you know, we'll, we'll definitely <laughs> allow for different approaches to that big question. Yeah. And you also have to approach it from, from both angles in terms of, we don't care about your race results. Say someone like me, like I'm not going to win a race. Like I'm not even the yeah. fastest person in my immediate four person family. So <laughs> I can't even win, like win a race to the car. So like not caring about my race results means something different from like a negative. So it's like, Hey, like, um, you know, like, Oh Matt, it's okay. If you weren't able to achieve something like, you know, this is, this is bigger than all of that. But also the other side, yeah. the other side, like the whole like idea of when the dog catches the car, then what, right? Like what, if, like, <laughs> if you have a, like, like Claire, she wins way too cool 50 K. And then if she ties her self-esteem to a win and then she gets there and then she doesn't feel any different, then that that's another way of approaching it in terms of, you know, achieving that sort of, you know, running enlightenment. Yeah. And I think most people have a story that if they like think hard enough about, they find their own epiphanies about this. Claire being a great example. Um, you know, I don't want to tell her story, but she's told this before. So I'll just abridge it a little bit, but you know, she burst onto the scene in 2016 where she won the Leadville hundred. And I think the second fastest time ever, just like insane, you know, and she's 23 or four at the time. And that comes with a lot of pressure, you know, like I don't think people always realize how much it puts on a person when there's all these stories written about him and people are like, Oh, well, what are you going to do next? And the social media comments, you know, are, are critical of things like training later on or nutrition or whatever. And, you know, that's a hard environment to be in. So the next year, 2017, she got a golden ticket to Western States at black Canyon and then gets to Western States as one of the favorites because she's amazing. And in that race, she's running in the top three at mile 90 or something. And, um, essentially a Baker cyst behind her knee, um, has a major issue and she loses the ability to run as she was moving up in the race and feeling great. Um, she just has to slow to a walk and then to a crawl. And I'll always remember a text. I was so happy at the moment for her and for Kat and for other people that we were coaching and, you know, just whole community. And I just remember this text from an athlete, which was, um, Claire is now walking and now she's trying to walk backwards. And now she's like, you know, in other words, she lost the ability to run at the worst moment. And that's like, well, what happens then? You know, you put everything on the line for this moment. And like, that's pretty much the most heartbreaking way it can happen. And for Claire, I mean, I think she's a great example of having that epiphany, which is she went to the mountains for a couple of weeks. I didn't hear from her. She gets back down. And what she says to, to me in a, in a phone call is like, I have figured it out for myself, which is I am here 
to try to help the people, help the community and to really advocate for the environment and all these, like all these really noble goals about the type of person she wanted to be. And nowhere in that was race results. And I thought the, the coolest thing, well, a couple of cool things. One, using that approach, she went and won CCC in Europe a few months later on the little training, which just shows that, you know, you don't need to view things incredibly intensely to have those great results. But then to me, the coolest part is that she really doubled down on advocating for the environment. So if you follow her, you've probably noticed all these things that she's done over time. She's just doing that on her own. No sponsor, no one was paying her to do that. And I come from an environmental law background. So I was like, wow, she's putting in so much work. This is how you make change. And not only that has two really happy endings, even more so than like winning races. One, Patagonia noticed how much change she was making and brought her on, not as an athlete, but as an ambassador for environmental causes, which is amazing. But two, something that happened the day after Way Too Cool that I think is even better than the race is um, Senator Bennett from Colorado is started a new initiative and is pushing for legislation based on work that Claire and Tommy Caldwell and a few others are doing um, for the environment. So in other words, like she's making a massive change, pushing back against the idea that like, you need to take yourself as the center of the environment, like as the center of the universe to be like a top level athlete. And I think that that most runners have a story like that. Um, So yeah, I mean, everyone has different perspectives, but through it all, like you can find like yourself in this. And I think no one will find themselves breaking a finish tape for a win or having the race of their lives. That's not where you find yourself. That's where you get, you stroke the ego monster a little bit and maybe get some joy on that day where you find yourself is in the doldrums of despair about whether it's a race or something else in your life. I mean, that's how you grow. And you coach, and this is the universal you, you and Megan both coach, Yeah, you know, runners like Claire and then runners like me. And I just, I'm just curious because I don't live that life is that when you have these conversations with runners at the top end of performance when you're talking to those people how do you talk about achieving high performance and achieving happiness simultaneously well i think the first most important point is that it's the same for everyone like and you know i know you're saying you you couldn't win a race to the car um but you're still living your elite athlete life and that's one thing we try to emphasize with everyone. And that, that was another one of those founding principles is that everyone is an elite athlete to us. And they are like to us, what elite athlete means is anyone that's willing to pursue their potential within the context of a life that's meaningful to them. That's all it is. So for some people that can mean they're doing hundred mile weeks and taking ice baths and, you know, spending every day focused on reaching their athletic potential for other people. It can mean they're a parent and they work a job and maybe they're doing 10 miles a week, but they're trying to find out what they're capable of. Like they're not, you know, they're making sacrifices. They're pushing through, you know, we all feel the same things during runs. We all experience the same things where those endpoint points lead is often not a choice either. You know, a lot of what we reward in, in this world generally is not about like how bad does someone want it? It's about like, what's their circumstances like? What are their genetics like? All these other things. So what we try to do is separate those two. Like we don't, we don't want to reward. I mean, we hope not to though. Sometimes I'm sure we fall short of it. Like we don't want to reward someone 
for having amazing genetics. You know, <laughs> we want to reward everyone if you're, if you're trying to do that, if you're pushing like that. So, you know, what we say to athletes is everyone's an elite athlete. I mean, it, you said earlier, do people that reach out have this idea on the world? I would say about like, um, related to results or whatever. I would say that's less important. Like that is something that most athletes find out. Instead, what's more important is that the person considers themselves, like can buy into this concept that they're willing to pursue their potential and it's meaningful to them. If it is, then you check our boxes. Um, so yeah, to us, everyone's an elite athlete and we don't treat anyone any differently on that regard. Like, um, you know, Claire had an amazing race at way too cool, but we also had, you know, an athlete that finished fourth and then athletes that finished in the back of the pack. And to us, it's all equally deserving of celebration. Um, as long as they buy into themselves over time, as long as they're willing to take that courageous leap of self-belief, that is the hardest part of being an athlete and a human being, um, you know, staring at all this uncertainty. So how to talk to an elite athlete about it in particular, like, you know, like some maybe, um, which, you know, could be anyone <laughs> with that framework. Essentially, it's just about telling, making sure they understand that reaching their potential doesn't like how much you bury yourself mentally is like, if anything, it's counterproductive to doing that that running potential is uncovered through a series of small daily actions that require that courageous self-belief. And you're going to get the courageous self-belief, not from taking yourself super seriously and putting races on a pedestal, because unless you're the literally the best athlete in the world, like that's going to backfire when, you know, you hit failure and you go into that existential despair. Instead, you can get that courageous self-belief from zooming out and like viewing yourself in a universal context, trying to laugh at the ups and downs and enjoying the cries too. And um, yeah, understanding that like, once you do that, not only will you train better, you'll adapt to training better. Not just will your psychology improve, your physiology will improve. And over time, you can start this positive feedback loop where you achieve things that you never thought were possible before. And, you know, the whole time you're, laughing and enjoying the ride hopefully uh, but yeah who knows see i've never heard anyone put it in terms of body adaptation improving with that sort of mindset oh yeah it's the placebo effect i mean you know in a more it's much more complicated than that in the you know megan's the neuroscience scientist here so she can go into many more details but essentially when you think of like a layperson's definition of the the placebo effect, and I am the ultimate layperson here. Um, you know, essentially, you're harnessing the um, the psychology of thinking something is effective, um, and that's what is running training. Other than that, I mean, the placebo if things. It's it's not. It's also called like the Hawthorne effect is what it's called in drug trials, where um, and and other things like that. So where you um, Essentially, like, let's think about a five by three minute hill workout. Um, they, those can go totally differently, independent of how your physiology is actually performing that day or like what your baseline settings are. So let's say you go into that workout and you are down on yourself. And, you know, on that second interval, you start to have a little bit of that panic that we all have when we're starting to hit VO2 max where you're, you know, the monkey part of your brain's like, oh my gosh, oh my God, what's happening? Um, and you see that. You back off a little bit. Maybe you finish the workout. Maybe you don't. Um, but even if you finish the workout, it's maybe a little bit more slow than it might have been otherwise, even if it's just a second. And even if it's as fast as it was, maybe your heart rate was a little bit higher. You're putting out a little bit too much power or too much energy for how fast you're going. But And it, and it goes from there. It's, if instead, you know, you get to this place of more courageous self-belief, 
you know, you might have the same exact workout time-wise. It might look the same exact way, but your the way you approach it, the way your stress levels interact with your physiology will be totally different. And there's a fascinating study that came out in late 2017 from a researcher named John Keeley that essentially ties these points together, the stress model of endurance athletic adaptation, um, where those things that we don't necessarily consider outputs, um, you know, like what's, what's happening inside the brain, what chemicals are we're releasing, you know, how, what the cortisol is like, things like that directly impact how the body adapts long-term. So, you know, we care about mental health because it's so tied into like, conception of self and all these big ideals. But the, the side effect there is that if an athlete can make that leap to like, you know, enjoying the process, taking it a little bit less seriously, but still going for it and caring about it, then they can progress more than they might have otherwise. Um, so yeah, it's super weird and strange, but what we've seen and what we'll say, what we say about athletes is that, you know, we we're always asked the question of like, what's the most important element in an athlete and we've come to the conclusion that it's belief. Um, belief goes in a lot of different ways. That doesn't just mean self-belief. It also means belief in what you're doing, um, you know, belief in this process. But if that belief box isn't checked, then the body will, it will be a least common denominator situation where the body will not just not find what it's capable of. It'll just find what you think it's capable of. And what, you know, what we try to do is separate those two. From to change what you think you're capable of into this infinitely exciting thing that is always off in the distance and always uplifting and always really exciting. And if we can do that, then we can find the true potential, which is, you know, can be a scary thought indeed. See, you just illuminated a question for me that I was about to ask. And I think, I think it really hits home. So I'm going to still, I'm still going to get around to it because I think that this is an important kind of step-by-step process, but you talked just now, and this is a common thread throughout a lot of things that you've written, spoken about, and in the book uh, specifically, and that's enjoying the process. You know, that's literally, you know, th- that's what's implied in the happy runner, you know, just right <laughs> on the cover. Um, so with that, in the, with that being the case, enjoying the process, you also have, and this kind of goes back to the cognitive dissonance piece that we talked about earlier, is you also have a very strong belief in setting you know, to quote Jim Collins, um, Jim, Jim Collins, setting the big, hairy, audacious goals. And <laughs> again, for a lot of people, those two things can be antithetical. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the ultimate, the ultimate issue with being an athlete in particular, but you can tie it to anything in life, is that if you care about something, if you actually have goals and put yourself out there, you're going to fail more often than not. Um, and so the question is what happens when you hit failure, what we've seen and what, I mean, what's like almost cliche at this point is that amazing athletes, amazing entrepreneurs, amazing parents are not defined by avoidance of failure. Like there is a certain hit rate that you're going to have no matter who you are. It's instead how you respond to failure. Um, so what we try to do is get to a place where failure is another goal. Um, it is another thing that like, you know, we tell one of our big at- our th- asks this year of athletes is we want every single one of you to have like to fail, preferably in a humiliating fashion when it comes to running, but also your other big, scary goals in life. Um, but then the goal after that is not to, you know, it's how you respond. And what we want athletes to do is respond with like a little bit of reflection, but much more humor about it, like much more of like, 
oh man, that was really interesting. You know, that's life in a bite-sized morsel that you can consume, especially when it goes to running without that much like real negative consequence. Um, so yeah, like the, the idea being that, you know, what unites us all, whether you're the person, whether you're Jim freaking Walmsley at the front, someone at the back of the pack, but also you can apply this to jobs or parenting or anything is failure is these, that we all will fall short of what we want at points. And, um, yeah, I think what's fascinating is how people with the psychology of how people respond. And what we saw with that, what we've seen with athletes is that like, you know, some of that comes from within, but a lot of that is decided way before the failure actually happens. Um, it's not like something that it's like right after they decide it's like what they're doing in how they conceive of themselves long before that. So what we try to do is work, work with athletes on that, not in an explicit way, but more of in a way of like, you know, all the little micro failures along the way, like every workout that doesn't go well, every, every job presentation that doesn't go well, be like, that's pretty crazy. That's kind of funny, isn't it? And then we go into like the, the parts of it that might be humorous or parts of it that might be really sad, but when you zoom out a little bit, also kind of interesting and in, in a learning chance and you know, opportunity and all these other things. So yeah, I mean, the answer had a lot of BS in it, but the basic principle is to cut yourself as much slack as possible. If you're able to do that, you can use that slack to then pull you up as if you're like, you know, in, in a climbing movie, not free solo because you didn't have ropes, but like, you know, Tommy Caldwell or something, you know, you can use that slack to pull yourself up. If your rope's taut, then it's just going to snap when, when it gets stressed. Yeah. And another way I view this as, and it's also kind of like reframing the word failure, uh, which probably isn't the right word in this context is like, imagine being in like a pitch black room and the big hairy audacious goal is like find your way out and like viewing failure as like hitting the wall while looking for the door (laughs) right like that's not failure you're just finding where the door isn't whereas failure failure would be just standing in the middle of the room not touching anything no I, i i love that i would say that maybe a you know i haven't thought enough about this metaphor but maybe the the way we would frame it is that there is no exit and the goal is to try to like find a little match and maybe find a friend that's in that room with you like you we often say that there's no light at the end of the tunnel just more tunnel so try to embrace that tunnel um and that's like one of the big principles is that you know these big hairy audacious goals are awesome at to structure the life you know, but once you achieve a big, hairy, audacious goal, not only does nothing change, like it can be harder, like life can be harder. So the big, hairy, audacious goal is amazing, but just like, you know, there is no light. That is not a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, um, you know, you're just going to be continuing on that path. And so, yeah, I mean, we want athletes to realize the ridiculousness of what we're doing, you know, of this striving but to also love the striving and that know that the striving is the point. Um, and essentially it gets down to like essentially Buddhist or stoic philosophy or any, honestly, any spiritual framework, but applied to, you know, something that might seem a little trivial at times, which is running, but it's not trivial at all. Like if running's trivial, then everything's trivial. And so, yeah, like it's interesting. You, you know, you're pointing out a lot of it's clear that you're brilliant. You know, you're pointing out that <laughs> it's weird. So well, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I had to. I, had, day, I, 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 I thought it was just that was an unintentional outburst. 
No, and that, that needs to be like a laugh track for podcasts right there. That was amazing. I wish that followed me every time I made a real joke. Um, that was actually, yeah, that was actually my wife. She was listening in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's amazing. But yeah, so that the goal is to care deeply, but simultaneously not care at all. And, um, you know, I think that it gets back to existence itself being a paradox. And, you know, getting comfortable with that is the key to enlightenment outside of running but it's kind of also the key to enlightenment in running. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're also talking about these goals. You know, you talk about, you know, there's that range between possible and impossible and finding where in that range a potential big goal could fall, you know, as, a, as compared to like short-term goals, which are probably on more of the, the, you know, on the other kind of other end of the range. And with that in mind, you know, you referenced our podcast with Nick, uh, Nicholas Emma, uh, who was on a couple weeks ago. And in it, he talked about how, you know, he's on this, you know, he's on his big goal is to get an OTQ um, for 2020 in the marathon. And you know, you're a part of that. You're his coach for him. That's a huge goal. That's dropping, you know, compared to where he was two years ago, like a minute per mile in the marathon, which is a huge improvement. So when you're thinking about and collaborating with your runners, about potential goals how much does talent play a part and how would you define or try to find out how talented somebody is and i'm aware that that's a very loaded word so i'm trying to like kind of pick apart what that (laughs) means to you yeah i mean so talking about nick i mean i think nick knows and i would say this to him in you know in conversations you are saying it to him because i know he's listening to this episode yeah I don't care whether he OTQs whatsoever. Um, you know, I only care that like, it's a, it's an interesting journey and he continues afterward pursuing whatever his, his potential, wherever his potential leads or wherever his life leads. Um, but I love that goal. And when he said that, you know, when he, when we indicate, when I, you know, I'm not sure who raised it first exactly, but um, you know, it coalesced together because to me, that's the ultimate, you know, ultimate in like giving each day purpose and excitement and all that. But I don't care about December 3rd when he, or whatever the date is of the California international marathon, when he goes for that, I care about December 4th and December 20th and then the next year and all those things. And so, you know, the only reason I care about that December 3rd is for what it means for, you know, the next year. And then, you know, we need to think about what it means for everything after that. Um, and so we're th- we will be talking about that plenty before, but, um, you know, I always think that that's an interesting point. And then as it relates to talent, you know, I think talent is one of those things that no one really understands what they're capable of almost ever in life. Like the, th- the, the places we think we're hitting our heads against the ceiling are almost always like false, um, like mixing metaphors, but false summits. Um, and so, you know, if we stop at the, maybe a glass never ceiling, actually reached... we say glass ceiling, glass ceiling. No, no, I think that that has a little bit too <laughs> Still many too loaded. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe if Megan was on, she could talk about that. Um, so I'm going to change the, change the metaphor to summits. So like, yeah, if you get to a false summit and think you're at the top, you're just going to, you know, you're not going to stop or you as you see the false summit on the way up, you're going to stop pushing and stop real, you know, stop dreaming of the actual place that you could go. Um, so I think the number of athletes that find their, you know, actually push up against their talent is pretty small. Um, almost zero at the very top of the sport. There are some, 
but, you know, I think one of the things that coaching really unveiled for us is that, you know, we'll have like someone like Nick, you know, you're talking about a minute per mile in the marathon. Even if it's not a minute per mile in the marathon, he's already done like 30 or 40 seconds and he's going to do more. Um, you know, that he probably would have said that was crazy. Um, and I think a lot of the process of coaching for, for our relationship at first was just getting him to not think it was crazy and to let him pursue that. Um, so in terms of diagnosing talent, we don't, um, like quantitatively, we don't, we try not to let athletes do, do VO2 max tests, which is a variable that is highly dependent on genetics. And we try to avoid quantitative analysis of, you know, have each athlete avoid quantitative analysis of themselves because those numbers are awesome. If they're telling you a story you want to hear and they're the worst freaking things in the world, if they don't, and there's too much noise and not enough signal underneath to like incentivize a long-term love of the process. Because like, if you, if you're looking at every Strava run, seeing what your pace was on something or your, you know, your split time was, yeah, you might run better one day and that's uplifting, but what happens when you run a little worse? And the problem is that better day might not actually be better for you than the worst day. The worst day could have been a great stimulus and you won't know for three months, but if you think it's bad, it'll be bad. Um, so essentially we try to remove that evaluation entirely and trans transfer it to like this, I, this kind of more, um, you know, wishy-washy feel element. Like, can we find joy in the ups and downs independent of like something else, someone else telling us whether it can be joyful or not. Um, so it gets into internal validation. And I think runners are especially presented with a choice on internal external validation because we have so many numbers and races and, you know, times and all these different things that kind of present a binary um, option. So we try to shift things a little bit away from the binary as much as we can um, with the understanding that like, you know, sometimes that's hard, but the more you can do that, the more an athlete can like buy into themselves and do that creative self-belief independent of like, you know, how a run is. I mean, how many times, Matt, I'm sure you've had this moment where you go on a run, you're kind of happy about it. Then you look at your splits after your watch and then your feeling on it changes entirely. Like, has that ever happened to you? No, I mean, my, I don't think I've ever had a bad run. No, sweet. <laughs> no, 100%. Dude, 100%. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. And you, can't, you like, can't approach a run as a referendum on you, your fitness, or your potential. Or anything. Like, I mean, you know, we're talking about running, but honestly, what we care way more about is, like, I care more about how Nick feels as a father and, and other things in his life. And, you know, if someone is, ju- if you're judging yourself on, like, for me, if I judge myself on, like, an article I wrote, like, I wrote a lot of crappy articles, I'm sure. But, like, you know, you're not, if I viewed it as a referendum on myself, as you said, like, that word, then you're going to just, like, those losses will just tear you down to the point that you'll never have the courage to try. And what all of this comes down to is giving yourself the option and the, the mandate even to just go for it, to go for it in everything, to go for it with your business, to go for it with your, your family life, all these different things. Um, because there are no right answers. We're all stumbling through existence. We're all trying to find these, these, these solutions that might not even be present. And in the face of that, just do it, just move. And if you're doing that, then that is amazing and something that I think like no matter what someone's doing or what their goal is, like we want to support, um, whether it's as coach or whether it's other coaches or whether it's podcasts or anything else, 
And that is where life happens. Life happens when you're, you know, you're willing to move forward um, fearlessly and be okay with whatever the consequences are. Um, And, you know, injecting a little enthusiasm into people's lives to try to try to give them a little push, give them a little tailwind on that journey, I think is probably the most important thing we do as coaches. Would you say that more people set goals that aren't big enough as opposed to people setting goals that are too big? I think that that might be actually a good breakdown between, you know, you asked before about someone that finishes first and someone that doesn't. I think that that might be maybe the most important distinction between someone that is like doing something like winning a race and someone that might not is that often the people that might not find their goals less um, in their own heads, find them less meaningful than the people that might be able to have a goal of winning Western States or something. And so we try to say like every goal is equally meaningful. Um, but in, in, you know, everyone can have their own moonshot. Like, and so to try to find your own moonshot, no matter what that is, um, you know, it's, it's okay to be unrealistic. Like, I don't care, like, you know, I don't really care whether you reach it. Like we talking about, like, that's the whole idea. And so, yeah, find, no matter who you are, find your moonshot. And what we find is that, yes, people like Claire and Kat and others might win races. Um, and that's awesome. And, but that isn't even the goals we want for them. We want their goals to be even bigger and scarier, but, and they might improve some, but the people that might be finishing in the back of the pack or the middle of the pack, oh my gosh, once their um, constraints get lifted, they're the ones, they improve by so much more. Um, and so we try to tell, tell those people that, you know, you're actually exceedingly lucky at, in some ways because you're, the amount that you can do, if you're just willing to go for it, might blow your mind. And so, I mean, I would say a lot of the people that are most fulfilled in their athletic lives that we coach are not the people winning races, not the people even finishing in the front. It's the people finishing in the middle that used to be chasing cutoffs and things like that. Um, and then sometimes those people that used to be chasing cutoffs end up in the front. And it's just so interesting to see that journey unfold. And I think, you know, all this rambling on, granted, I love the name of your podcast, rambling, like, honestly, I should have been one of your first guests when rambling was in the title. Um, yeah. What was I, what but, was I thinking? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rambling is basically, I mean, kind of, I feel like I need a nickname that involves rambling. Um, I mean, but, you already have the alliteration set up for you. Oh my God. It's, it's a given then we'll have to get this going. But um, yeah. So the, you know, a lot of the rambling I'm doing is all connected to seeing those journeys over many years. So a good example is Zach Ornelas, uh, who just won the U S 50 K champs um, on Sunday. And I was looking at Zach's training log is at day like six column six or row 1600, you know? So he's been, we've been coaching him forever and um, you know, seeing what he's done and how things have transformed over time. Like as a coach, it's really hard when you get these, these inputs to have anything, but like kind of a dream, big spiritual, like all these other big ideas that we're talking about approach to things, because you see all of these stories of what people can actually do. And then also what, you know, how they can constrain themselves and the good and the bad of life outside of running all of that. Um, And I think that's probably why a lot of coaches have kind of these ideas floating about, um, not just in running, but other sports too. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're asking all the right questions and pointing out a lot of things that are, are really hard. And like, 
there are no answers and I'm not bringing them today. All I ask is that the people listening, you know, if you take nothing away from this, just like dream big for, for the heck of it. And don't really worry about like what anyone says or even what you think about that. Just dream, dream big because, oh my God, when you wake up with that purpose, then you can find out what you're actually going to be able to do. Which is why it was so telling when you said the biggest thing that someone needs to have when they come to our group is belief. Because if you don't have belief or faith, then all this stuff that we just talked about for 20 minutes just falls apart at the first sign of inconvenience or struggle. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, that's cliche in that it, it applies to literally everything in life, but it really does. I mean, it's important to have your big dreams in context, right? Like you don't want to be like a dog that wants to be a flamingo or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like you don't want to be in a different sphere of existence entirely. But I think just most people have no idea where that process, like where, where their trajectory can actually go. And so, you know, I think what Megan and I's big thing as coaches, like our big role is to try to give people that just a hint, just a hint. Like you don't have to tell them exactly what their goals should be or anything like that. Just that they, they can do so much and that they're so amazing as humans and runners and everything just by who they are. That existence itself is as hard as crap getting through. I mean, you know, most people have been through a lot of things in their lives, good and bad. And to be where you are, no matter where it is, it's freaking awesome. And to really embrace that. And if you do that, then like, a lot of possibilities open up. And if you don't, then the world can become pretty dark and scary. And, you know, some of the more uncertain things about existence can really um, start to wear you down. Um, It's not a binary choice, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. And you touched on something there um, that I think is something that I'd love to talk to you about is just the idea of, you know, someone who is maybe like predisposed to an addictive nature or mindset or someone who, uh, has you know been affected or is affected by some sort of inner demons? It seems like somebody who has you know these things going on in them. You, I feel like there's a higher proportion of these individuals will be in, like in the ultra running scene because it can be so all or nothing. Not that's not the right way of saying it. It can be you know it's such an extreme activity that can be all encompassing. I guess is a better way of saying it that draws people who have maybe struggled with addiction and other things to it. So what has been your experience with working with runners who maybe working their way through that or past that and are embracing running um, not simply as something they enjoy but almost as part of a means to an end? That's such a good question. I think it gets back to first demons are ubiquitous and i think that whoever's anyone listening to this right now like no matter what your story is know that it's okay and it's shared um and i think that that was something that really our eyes were open to when we started coaching and so i you know, i'm not telling many stories on this podcast because we're talking about big ideas and i don't like using other people's stories um so and then my stories are lame and people have probably heard them but you know probably to the outside world for the most part, I'm like, you know, happy, bubbly, enthusiastic, you know, exclamation points person. Um, but you know, I used to have pretty, pretty rough, not terrible, but like I had anxiety, depression runs in my family. Fortunately I've been spared so far. Who knows what's, you know, what's coming in the future. Um, and 
like that's my little story. It's nothing serious. And I have like, you know, the book goes into more details on that. People have probably heard me talk about it before, so I won't, you know, drone on. But what coaching showed us in particular is that when you open up these means of communication, it's you see a lot of the things that other people that are in similar roles see, you know, like whether it's a teacher or someone, um, a therapist, literally anyone that you just talk or a friend, you know, you talk, you open up, you hear things over time. And what you learn is that the human existence, the human experience, it is shared, you know, like some people might be set to this, to this level that they're, they're immune to things like depression, anxiety, addiction. Um, But those people, like it's rare, it's much rarer than the opposite, which is people are, you know, have their, whether it's major regrets in their lives, things they wish they had done differently, um, self-loathing, you know, addiction, eating disorders, cutting oneself. I mean, in other words, that all of these stories are there. They're just not obvious. Like you can't see it when you see someone, what they're going through. And I think what a lot of people assume is that everyone, like my experience is unique to me. Um, And, you know, I think this might be a little off topic, but um, a movie that came out last year, Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade, I think is a little bit relevant. So what that movie is about is... Your pop culture references are always on point, David. I gotta be honest. I've heard a <laughs> lot of yours, and they're very, very on point. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, this is a really good movie. I think it's like ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and which is weird because Bo Burnham, for those that know, is like, you know, a musical comedian in the past, and now he's this brilliant director, but might not be known for these deep insights. Though I think if you were looking at his work more critically, you would see that you would have seen them there all along. Um, but essentially, what the what the movie's about is this this girl in middle school who broadcasts her life on YouTube and Instagram and all these different things. And the, the life that you see when you're looking at that is totally different than the internal life that she's actually leading. Um, and where, where Bo Burnham said he was motivated to, to make this movie was he was at the mall or, you know, some store or something one day. And he sees this, this young girl that's sitting there looking pretty morose, kind of sad, maybe down on herself. And then about five seconds or so every minute, her phone would go up and her face would just light up and she'd be smiling and everything would be great. And then she'd put her head down and she'd edit the photo, you know, so she's taking selfies to put on Instagram or something. And the idea being that she was performing, we're all performing in some way. And, you know, I think a lot of the hard part is that a lot of people think those performances are real and everyone else is being genuine except themselves. Um, They're the ones faking it. And so, you know, what you see in coaching is that everyone is that girl on the bench, you know, looking a little bit down and everyone is that girl, like taking the picture of themselves and that it's not, you know, it's not you, it's not just you. So as it relates to the sport in particular, you know, I think we get a cross section of humanity. So, you know, the demons and the stories of addiction and things are there because, but they're there because that's the human story. Um, and you know, what coaching showed us is that, man, once you open up, it's like, everyone's got it, whether it's, whether it's something like clinical or whether it's something that's just a little bit more like affecting their day-to-day slightly. And so we're not experts on that. We just try to open up the discussion and like, you know, get people to therapy, you know, make them know that medication's okay if they need it, that sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, as like, there's obviously like, that's an answer that I gave is a little bit of a cop out because there is some 
you would think that there is some correlation there and there probably is, you know, there's this, this idea in neuroscience of sensation seeking behavior. Some people are, are wired a little bit differently where they seek out like the highs and lows of human existence a little bit more than others. So it makes sense that those people gravitate towards ultra running in particular, um, but running in general, for sure. And I think that we do see some of that. Um, but yeah, I think the, the bigger point is just like, man, you know, we talked about cutting yourself slack, giving yourself grace, like all these topics, like to be fully engaged in that and to try to do it to others too, because, you know, if that little girl on the bench, if, you know, if she has a friend there with her, that's like saying like, you know, just being there, that might've made a big difference for her. And so, you know, hopefully we can do a little bit of that for each other. Um, not just with friends and people we care about, but like social media, like all these communities that have big downsides also have the possibility to really like be uplifting. And I think that that's one really cool thing about ultra and trail right now that people are starting, I th- not starting, they have been doing it for a while, but really buying into on a fundamental level. And I think it's going to change more lives than people know. Yeah. And I know, you know, I, you know, I, um, I'm in therapy and I know it's one of those things that I've dealt with is that I remember saying this to my therapist was that if I'm mm-hmm. not, if I'm not judgmental about myself, if there is no self judgment, then it's a cop out and I'm not being goal oriented and I'm not dealing with reality. And it's funny. I hear myself saying it and I'm like, God, why did I even think that? But it was like, that was, that was true in the moment. And it was been true for the majority mm-hmm. of my life. And I know that's something for a lot of people that they deal with and maybe not in every area of their life, but in certain areas in going back to what we talked about earlier, that, you know, your runs can't every run can't be a referendum or any run can't be a referendum on you, your fitness or your potential. And I know that's part of the reason why in terms of your workout construction for your athletes, it's almost always time segment based, not necessarily like 800, four 800s each done in three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, first I want to like, how long have you been in, uh, or doing therapy? If you don't mind. Uh, I did it for several months last year and now I'm back in that. It was just a time issue. I was just, um, like it was just, it was affecting literally my work day. I was like, ah, I gotta find a better time. So I ended up finding a new therapist that I've been working with much more recently. Well, I admire you sharing that so freaking much. I mean, it means a lot. These like that's one of those things that you know people don't share. There's a, there's a stigma there for sure, and um, yeah, I mean, basically the idea being that escaping the world between your two ears is important for everyone, and different people can do that through different means. Um, you know, I think if people like are just trying to find the answers on their own, um, like you know, thinking about it meditating on it, like that's not where it's going to come from for almost anyone, you know, where it'll come from is, you know, sometimes people can escape it through running or their friends or their family or other things. But, um, yeah, being willing to talk about that, it's freaking awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you. But as it relates to like workout design and more specific things like that, I mean, I think the main place where that comes from is, one, like we just don't notice a difference as it relates to athlete performance in whether they think of themselves like hitting splits or hitting efforts. Um, so we encourage effort because effort allows for flexibility on the day based on all these factors that are much bigger than running. Um, you know, how you feel, like where, the, where you are in your life, training block, all that. So like 
you know, if I'm telling someone to do three minutes moderate or moderate mod hard or something, they go out, they run that three minutes mod hard might get them, you know, 50 meters further on some days. What we've seen doesn't really matter for adaptation about that. Whereas if I give them 800s and they go out to hit them in three minutes, some days that might be the perfect workout. And some days it might be a horrible workout that pushes them far too hard, recruits the wrong muscle fibers and results in poor adaptation trajectories. And um, some days, so and some find, days yeah. you might just be feeling it. And you're like, you know what? Yeah. I could have done way more without emptying myself. Well, especially when you're talking about this exponential progression moment. So, you know, we're talking about Nick a lot, sorry, Nick. Um, but just because it's like the, you know, the example that's there, but you know, if Nick had been thinking that he was hitting splits this whole time, how would he ever have had this insane progression? Um, because, you know, where his progression happened, like when you're actually seeing the day to day. So I was fortunate. I knew where he was before he knew where he was and where I saw it was in these little workouts, like these one minute intervals, these other things where he was running without constraints. And as you know, because he was running by effort and as a result did, you know, far more than he would have let himself try had he been running, you know, in a different style. Um, that's not to say the other style doesn't work and we don't use it. You know, we definitely use it occasionally, especially for marathon runners doing long runs and things like that. But um, it's more just like set up a framework where you will be successful. Like it's successful in terms of like, you know, no matter how it goes, you will be okay with it. And, you know, the, yeah, essentially like too many athletes can't make that, that distinction. And that's essentially why in some ways swap is like, a, uh, a recovery place for post-collegiate runners and, you know, some of our top athletes are, were collegiate runners. And the reason like we, a good example is Megan's Duke track team. So Megan played field hockey at Duke, my wife, Megan, and then walked onto the Duke track team, did very well. Um, and of that team, almost no one is running anymore. This is incredibly talented, like national level team. Um, another athlete is named Ashley Brasovin. She's coached by us too. She's one of our best friends. But then other than those two, it's like almost no one. And that story plays across most t- college teams at the top, at, in, especially in D1. It's so true. I mean, if you go and, look at the OTQ list, it's not like, like, it's like if you had like Aaron Strout writing an article for Runner's World, you wouldn't be like, hey, I want you to do a deep dive into how come all these people are D2 and low D1 runners. The story would be, wow, someone from Michigan is in the field. Like it's almost yeah. like that is the anomaly. Yeah, yeah. And that's not, I mean, obviously we're talking about talent. There's the talent question, right? Those, those, you would assume that those top D1 runners, I mean, that, those are the sub 210 athletes that never pursued it to the point that like, you know, they fully saw what they were capable of. They thought they were hitting their, their limits probably. And a lot of that probably can be distilled down to like, it's a pressure cooker of an environment where you're running against people on the track all the time. And it's really hard to sustain a love of running when that's how you associate like quality efforts. Like when it's these things that often you become like Pavlov's dog, but instead of, you know, your mouth watering when the bell rings, when the bell rings, like the, you know, the workout starts, like you get a disgust for yourself and what you're doing. Um, It's not everyone obviously, but it's definitely a story that plays out far too much. So, you know, our goal is like, uh, you know, I was talking about Zach earlier. Zach did run at Michigan. So a funny example that you use. Um, and when he joined, you know, he was burning out, you know, 222 marathon or something. Um, 
And what we essentially tried to do is go back to the basics and like make running about recess, about speed, about all these things of feeling free and didn't let him like take a split for a year, I think something crazy like that um, just to get that out of his system. And, you know, he thought, I think a little bit that he was starting to push up against his talent limits. And what he's seen recently is like, who knows where this actually ends last year at CIM, he ran 217 flat. He won the U.S. 50 mile champs. He just won U.S. 50K. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Zach's a 212 marathoner, you know? Maybe that's what he will be. And the point is, like, he never – he might have always thought he was a 222 marathoner if he, like, stayed in that world where the goal was to, you know, constrained by, like, what you think you're capable of based on a watch. And I've heard you talk about his training before is that when you started working together during that that first year, that you as a goal was basically learning how to, again, a relative term here, learning how to run fast again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what it comes down to at the end of the day, I think that that's the big, the big element that a lot of athletes and especially in trail and ultra miss, but marathoners do honestly, most athletes that are, like post-collegiate, um, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties, and so on, um, is you gotta be able to run fast. Like, um, and so I would say that's kind of the unifying principle of our training. Everyone does things differently based on whether they're more fast twitch oriented or slow twitch oriented, which we have really convoluted ways of trying to figure out. But, um, the basic idea is, you know, if you're not able to run like pretty darn fast for 30 seconds, you're not going to be able to run anywhere near your potential for 30 minutes. And Which is insane to, to most people when they think about it at first glance. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we talk about this a little bit in our book with some of the, some of the science and the numbers behind it that we have, but you know, it's, it's both counterintuitive and extremely intuitive. Um, that essentially it comes down to if you're going at 80% of your top end sustainable speed, and most people are around that number, like your top end sustainable speed matters because it's always going to be relevant. So yeah, maybe you can, you can narrow that. You can accordion that a little bit over time so that you're, you're, you know, something you can hold gets a little closer, but eventually you just get slower. I get everything. And, um, and so it builds efficiency a, in your stride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, efficient. So, I mean, it has elements of everything. So there are aerobic benefits, even though it feels like there aren't and improves cardio. I mean, what Canova would say the top marathon coach in the world is that those shorter efforts improve cardiac stroke output, um, essentially how much your heart pumps with each beat by these rapid, rapid expansions. Though I think that that's less important than let's say the biomechanical, um, efficiency elements of it, where, you know, if you take, if you measure, there's a fascinating study came out last year that, you know, a lot of like, I don't want to say we were criticized for putting these ideas out there so much in the ultra world, but like, I don't know if like everyone, was super appreciative of it. If that makes sense at first, you know, when, especially when we didn't, you know, there was no, we didn't have pro athletes, you know, it, essentially like it makes sense to think we don't know crap. Um, but a study came out last year that validated a little bit. They essentially had athletes do, you know, I, with the caveats that exercise science studies should be read in context and it's more complicated, but um, it's two to four weeks of 10 by 30 seconds fast, And one study was two times a week. One study was four times a week. And what they found is that the athlete's VO2 max and lactate threshold did not improve. So, you know, for those listening, like your aerobic systems were the same. 
So you're, you're working with the same engine. But at the same time, they found that people's velocities at those effort levels, so their velocity at VO2 max, their velocity at lactate threshold, how fast they actually went using the energy, that they, the same amount of energy, improved by sometimes up to 6 to 10%. Just from this little, like a reduction in training volume and an increase in this, this little stimulus. Which is a huge that's number. That, Oh yeah, I mean for for a runner that's at all advanced, that's like insane. And we see we've seen that for years when people start, especially. Um, so we have great fun when people join Swap. It's like one of those those quick shortcuts to belief is that usually within the first month or two, you know, they're seeing lifelong breakthroughs, including athletes like Zach, and they're like, "What is going on?" And then um, what you know, so what you're seeing there is running economy improving. And why is running economy improving? No one really knows. Most likely, it's related to things like form efficiency, a little bit of aerobic, but primarily related to neuromuscular variables, especially when you're looking at very rapid adaptations since some of the others, aerobic especially takes longer. Um, so essentially how your, how your brain and body interact, which you know running matters much more than a sport like cycling. That's why you don't see 30-second intervals in cycling so much um, because it, it's just not an important element. Whereas in swimming, which is very based on... A, a, you know, economical movement patterns. I mean, essentially it's all interval training, like very short interval training. Um, and so, you know, it's a fascinating continuum there of, of development. So, and it also, yeah, I mean, it I also like, like yeah. I love the comparison there. I'm sorry to jump in, but I, but, but, oh, for sure. I want but it also shows, again, there are more than one, there's more than one reason for this, but I think it's the last 10 or 12 um, hundred meter men's hundred meter world record holders or Olympic gold medalists or something along those lines. Like, I think that the median, um, the median family, like, like spot in the family where this person was located, like the seventh child out of eight. Cause it's like, you just know right from the, the jump that this kid was having to like basically run at like full max velocity to keep up with his older siblings. <laughs> yeah that's that's fascinating i had never heard of it. or maybe uh something about being seventh or eighth child makes you more receptive to doping <laughs> who knows yeah but that gets back to you don't know what you're measuring right and i think that that's the hard part of a lot of training methodology in general so like if you're confused by it to anyone out there or just know that like i am too and everyone is and every every you know every good coach really is confused by it and, and constantly learning and evolving. Um, and, you know, every athlete is too, because there's so many different, it's a multivariable system governed by chaos, essentially. And you're never exactly sure why something works. You can guess, you can measure it. You can think you're getting it right. But when you think you know it, it's probably when you're at most risk. And so for each athlete out there, for everyone listening, yeah, you don't have to do this stuff. Like you can totally get to your potential, some of you doing other things. Um, and so, yeah, I want to make sure it's clear that, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just kind of know, I mean, I've seen what works, but I don't, you know, it often comes down to like, like an athlete, Claire, this weekend being a great race, Claire hasn't really trained hard this, this winter, um, you know? And so I knew she was ready and I knew she was going to like, I, I mean, you know, I told a number of people that I think Claire was going to win, you know, against an amazing field, but I don't know why I thought that. Um, I just, you know, we know each other well enough now and we've seen those oscillations over time to kind of have a feel for it. But um, yeah, it gets back to, there's a lot of art mixed in with the, you know, more, more science, but it's a lot of art. So when you're thinking about your own training, anyone listening, just like know that there is no right answer in just like these other things. And as long as you're 
in implementing certain principles like and working hard, that's all it takes. Well, the proof is in the pudding, not only in race results, but how happy the runners in SWAP are. David, thank you <laughs> so much for coming on the Rambling Runner podcast. I really appreciate it. Last question. If people want to learn more about you and or SWAP and or the book, where can they go? Well, yeah, you can Google me. Uh, no, so our website is swaprunning.com, swaprunning.com. So email there if just always shoot us questions, even convoluted training questions. Even if we can't coach you, we always try to answer things in a detailed manner. Um, and then book the happy runner. It's on just, just came out globally. So no matter, even if you're listening overseas, you can get it. Um, but it's everywhere, bookstores, Amazon, all that stuff. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. I, I really feel like I was so excited about being on in Matt's questions that I sometimes rambled, but I want everyone to support the rambling runner podcast as much as you freaking can, especially if this is your first time listening um, because it's great. And he really delves down and Matt really delves down into some great stuff. So yeah. Thanks everyone. I appreciate that. I'm glad you got the $25. I've been mode you to say something nice about me. I appreciate oh, yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> All right, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I can, I'm a sellout for sure, but you know, 25 bucks for me is moving up in the world. It would have been a dollar just a couple of years ago. There you go. Well, we have also, we left a lot of meat on the bone. Hopefully I can get you back on the podcast another time. Again, thank you so much for coming on. This was a pleasure. Always can't wait for the next time. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with David Roach. What a good one. This was a classic. No doubt about it. And as soon as we got off the phone, I call David. I'm like, God, this has to be part one, man. You got to come on again some other time. He's absolutely fantastic. A wealth of information. That is for sure. Thank you, Mercury Mile, the presenting sponsor on this podcast. Go to mercurymile.com and save $10 by using code RamblingRunner10 at checkout. Because you know you want good running gear at a cheap price sent to your house so you don't have to go shopping around. So go check them out, mercurymile.com. Also, big shout out to Lowell Running. Just an absolutely fantastic coaching service can't speak highly enough about them they are wonderful go to lolrunning.com thank you so much for listening for sharing for rating for reviewing and all things podcast related this podcast wouldn't exist without you the listener so thank you so very much have a great day and happy running